We are very grateful that this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp and Magic Mind. What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Mindy Corcoran is a speaker, author, founder, and CEO hailing from Oklahoma. She attributes her personal and professional success to her loving, tight-knit upbringing. However, everything she knew to be true would be challenged deeply on April 13, 2014, when her father and son were murdered in a hate crime. Mindy has allowed her Christian faith and her unending fortitude born from her family to withstand all that came next for them. This includes a legal battle to convict their murderer, the publication of her memoir, Healing a Shattered Soul, the creation of a foundation, Seven Days, and the unending mission to inspire others wading through the throes of grief. The Broken Cycle Media team is very grateful Mindy is sharing her journey with us today, as well as for her continued advocacy work I am also personally grateful for her sisterhood in survivorship, as we became lifelong members of the same sorority. Thanks for having me. I am Mindy Corcoran. I am the author of Healing a Shattered Soul. This is a memoir that I felt like I had a responsibility and I had significant passion and compassion to put in print Before that, I started a company called Workplace Healing. It's a consultative company with a software platform that we call the Human Recovery Plan. I didn't realize really until about four years ago that I am a serial entrepreneur. It is interesting that my childhood did probably foster that. I grew up with parents who were extremely involved in giving back and volunteering. My mom absolutely represented leadership for me. She was very active in the community. She and my dad together helped restart Duncan Little Theater. They'd spent a lot of time in Duncan, Oklahoma. We lived in Marlowe, Oklahoma. The towns are 10 miles apart. Duncan is where my dad's office ended up being. And he was a practicing physician. He got his medical degree when I was three years old. So my entire life and until his murder, he was a practicing physician. My dad was pragmatic. The word pragmatic probably has his name underneath it in a Webster dictionary. If I said, oh, dad, my wrist hurts here, he'd say, well, when does it hurt? Well, when I move it this way. Well, don't move it that way. Things like that. He was funny and humorous and matter of fact, but also nurturing. I think I absorbed a lot of that. 
I am the only daughter in the family. I have an older brother, three years older, and a younger brother, 10 years younger. And I do believe that how we're placed as siblings and in birth order has significant implications to who we are. I wasn't just the younger sister. I was the little sister. I'm a petite person. So I was almost always one of the smallest people in the room. I wanted control over my situation. And my brother was bigger and stronger. He was first born. So he got kind of first dibs on a lot of things. I remember thinking that, well, if I want control, then I need to step up. I can remember seeing myself on the playground. It would have been no older than fifth grade. So 10 years old, I'm standing on top of an old water well. We were in a rural community and I am bossing everyone around. And that's what they said. They said I was bossy. Now we don't say that to little girls. We say, oh, she's leading. She's practicing her leadership skills. And that's what I did. I created things to happen and I wanted people to come alongside me and do those things with me. So I remember at a young age starting that. I was also very active. I was in gymnastics on a gymnastics team. I competed until I was 12. Marlow, Oklahoma, that's where I was raised. Marlow was a town of 5,000 people. The community and churches that my parents had us involved in, they did believe that it takes a village and they were our villagers to help raise us. We could play kick the can in the dark. That's the kind of neighborhood that I grew up in. And I also grew up with the golden rule. You do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. That's how I felt growing up. Every Sunday we were in church. My grandfather, my dad's father, was a preacher. In my formative years, he was preaching at a church. When our pastor was maybe on vacation or sabbatical, my dad stepped in. I remember him standing at the pulpit preaching. I remember him writing out his sermons. And my mom oversaw the choir. Now, I also want to say, as an entirely white community and Native American, there were no Black people in town. There were also no Jews. There was no synagogue. There were no Muslims. There was a Catholic church. But everyone I knew was Christian. That was my upbringing. That's who I was around my formative years. I've learned since then about community, about diversity. And when I speak to people, I will sometimes open with, I'm a white girl from a white town, and I am the victim of a hate crime. I am not your typical person that you would see who would be a victim of a hate crime. And that is one of the reasons why I feel like I have so much responsibility to talk about what hate of others can do to all of us. I had a child with my first husband, and that child is Reet Underwood. I had Reet in 1999, and then really quickly got divorced. I met Lynn about 10 months later. We fell in love. We decided to get married. We chose my career pretty much over his career. And he moved to Overland Park, Kansas to live with me. We wanted to have another child. We wanted that sibling to be a close in age to read. I got pregnant and had a miscarriage. Then right after the miscarriage, I got pregnant with Lucas. I don't talk about that a lot, but in situations when I feel like it's appropriate to say that, I let people know that I've experienced that as well. I've experienced divorce, I've experienced a miscarriage, and I've experienced a heinous hate crime. On April 12th of 2014, we were a family of four. 
Reet was 14 at the time and Lucas was 12. Lynn and I had been on a anniversary trip for about four days. My mom and dad are the kind of people that are not just babysitters, they are all in. They had moved to our hometown and they kept our boys often. They came to ball games, they came to singing competitions, auditions. If there was a play, they didn't just go one night of the play, they went to every night of the play. There was an audition, they helped write the script. They were super involved and they had kept the boys while Lynn and I had been out of town. On this April 12th, it also happened to be the Saturday before Palm Sunday. Lynn and I hosted my mom and dad at our home because we wanted to get an up to speed on what did they do with the boys. We wanted to thank them. All of us were at the table. My mom and dad, who are very involved, we've got Lynn, me, Reed, and Lucas sitting at the table. We're rehashing everything that had happened while we were gone. And one of the topics that came up was that Lynn and I missed two of Lucas's lacrosse games. That's important because the next conversation was about who is going to take Reet to his audition the next day on Sunday and who is going to attend Lucas's lacrosse game. When that conversation came up, I said, well, I'm going to take Reet to the singing competition at the Jewish Community Center. Lucas had a sad face and I didn't notice it. And his big brother said, hey, mom, I think that it's okay if you go with Lucas and watch his lacrosse game. So we asked my mom, could she take Reet to the competition? And she could not. She was taking my niece and nephew to Easter Bunny Pictures. That was a big deal for my mom to take the little ones to Easter Bunny Pictures. So my dad became the driver of Reet. He was happy to take Reet to the audition. So that was all settled. And we talked about everything else that was going on at the time. Reet was actually working on his Eagle Scout. He was a freshman in high school. He was on the debate team. He loved to sing. He'd been in the school play. He was a performer. Looking back, this dinner that we had, it was very monumental. So that's who we were on April 12th before our entire world was shattered on April 13th. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. As a single mama with very little time for even my thoughts, I have definitely entered a period of self-healing and giving myself the gift of peace. That's helped me realize my energies are way more worthwhile being poured into spaces like therapy. Talk therapy has been a very necessary tool in my journey of curating healthy boundaries and self-love. I've utilized the tools that several great therapists have offered me over the years to manage and reduce my anxiety, create healthy boundaries, and cultivate strong communication and connection with my loved ones. That's why if you've been thinking of ways to strengthen your relationships, even the one with yourself, I suggest giving BetterHelp a try. It's simple and accessible because it's entirely online, Plus, it's designed to be convenient, fitting into your schedule. To start, you just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, but you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com WCN today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash WCN. The next day, April 13th, 
is Palm Sunday. The way our day unfolded, Lucas was up super early and out and about. He and Lynn left for the lacrosse game. And Lynn looked at me right in the eye and said, I know you're coming in a different car. Don't be late. They had to be there early for practice. Reek came bounding down the stairs in his coat and tie and fedora. He was planning to sing On the Street Where You Live from My Fair Lady. I'm in the kitchen washing dishes and putting things away. So he did his warm up and then he said, Mom, did you know I might get to sing a second song? And he sang for me, You're Gonna Miss Me When I'm Gone. I had tears in my eyes. It was beautiful and he did a great job. He sat down at the computer, was messing around, and then my dad came through the door. He and I had some chit chat. Reet hollered at me from the computer room. Mom, you're gonna be late. Still Lucas's lacrosse game. I walked past him and got my purse. I was about to leave and I stepped back into the space where he was and I leaned in for a kiss. I kissed him and I said, I love you, good luck. And he said, I love you too, mom. And those were the last words I would ever hear from him. I left the house and I went to the lacrosse game. When I got to the lacrosse game, the skies were blue, it was sunny, and everyone was coming out of the field into the parking lot. And a mom found me and she said they canceled the game. She said, evidently, there's lightning in the area. We couldn't see any lightning. There were no dark clouds. Where we were standing, we couldn't see anything. But evidently, within a whatever mile radius, there was a storm. Then I saw Len and Lucas coming from the field. He was so sad and upset. This was the opportunity for him to shine for both of us. And the game is canceled. I did my whole, hey, bud, I'm so sorry. I looked at Lynn. I said, I'm going to the audition. I got in my car and drove to the audition. And I got there well before his audition was starting. I pulled in the parking lot at 108. And I remember because I looked at the clock and thought to myself, they might not even be here yet. I'm definitely early enough. This is awesome. This is all working out very well for me. And I see my dad's truck. The driver's side door and the driver's side back door are both open. I don't see him. And I don't see any other cars. It's very empty. And then as I get closer, I see his body. I'm immediately in shock and immediately thinking he's had a stroke. He's had a heart attack. Where's Reed? All of that happened at the same time. And I pressed on the gas pedal and zoomed ahead, barely parking my car, grabbing my keys and running in my sandals as fast as I can. And I'm screaming to nobody. I didn't see any other humans. I am screaming, what happened? What happened? And my dad's body is lying perpendicular to his truck. And as I got about two and a half feet to three feet away, it was apparent visibly that he was deceased. There was nothing I could do for him. I could see that. But I wanted so badly to touch him, to hold him, to help him. But something pushed me back. I felt a pressure on me to not go any further. It was almost like a force field was around him. My Aunt Dina has said to me since, I think your guardian angel pressed your shoulders and pressed you back. I heard the words, your father's in heaven. Go find Reet. I took a breath and the shortest way to the building would have been to go around my dad, around to the left, and I didn't. I went around to the right and there were two men holding my son in their arms. I surprised them. I was screaming what happened to them. 
I saw glass shattered everywhere. I saw red dots on his face, not understanding what I was seeing. Another man, we ran into each other. He held me up. I was now definitely in shock. I couldn't hear anything they were saying. But someone said, who are you? And through that fog and blur and trying to understand what they were saying, I said, that's my father and he's in heaven. This is my son. Is he alive? I don't know what they said, but this gentleman grabbed me and he took me away. He moved me to the building. There was glass shattered everywhere. And I started trying to put the pieces together. I still could not comprehend what had happened. But then this gentleman said to me, there's been a shooting. There's a live shooter in the area and I have to get you to safety. He walked me over to the building and there was significant chaos that transpired after that. We all found each other at the Jewish Community Center because I managed to call my husband, Lynn. He called my mom, my brother, Tony, my aunt, Barbara, and told them, dad has been shot. Dad is dead. And Reet is seriously injured. Lynn drove us to Overland Park Regional Hospital. The news people are here. That started to unfold at the hospital. We were told within about 15 to 20 minutes that Reet had lost his life in the emergency room. And that's when I felt the world just cave in on me. We were held at the hospital for a much longer time than we wanted to be because my older brother wanted to tell his son himself. He didn't want him to see it on the news. I understood all of that. From that moment forward, it was like walking through molasses. There was shaking and disbelief. I knew that I'd lost dad, which I felt like I am going to need to process this. And then to lose Reed only half an hour later, we were completely shattered to lose my dad and Reed on exactly the same day by a man we didn't know or understand. We had no really concept that anyone in our space would harm us. We just had never experienced that before. And that goes back to, I'm a white girl from a white town who grew up in a bubble. For this to happen, it just completely turned me inside out. We all needed assistance of getting us out of the depth of darkness that we were all in. There were three people murdered that day. My dad was murdered first, Reet was shot second. He may have lost his life after Terry Lamano, the shooter, left the Jewish Community Center and drove to Village Shalom, which is a Jewish living center, but it's also a community living center, so you don't have to be Jewish to live there. He shot at 17 people and murdered three. He murdered Teresa Lamano in the parking lot. She was Catholic. She was there visiting her mother, who was a resident there. He shot and killed her. So three people were murdered that day. I did not understand the breadth of this and how far it had reached. Probably until maybe a full 24 to 48 hours later, there was a second or third conversation with Pastor Adam of the church. He said that today's show wants to interview you. People want to have a press conference. Would you and your brothers speak? And I remember looking up at him and not comprehending why people wanted to hear anything. It is definitely extremely traumatic. We were very blessed to have a victim's advocate for us who helped us and held our hand along the way from the very get-go. We met Jim Lamano, the husband of Terry, at the DA's office. That is not a great way to meet anybody. 
But we did meet him there and we have become since very close friends. I want to mention the state of Kansas has the death penalty. I get asked fairly often about, well, what do I think about the death penalty? I am not legal counsel. I do know that I want the man who murdered them to be put away. All of us at the table, about the second or third time we were at the DA's office, needed to talk about the fact that we didn't want him to have access to a microphone or access to podcasts or access to spewing out his hate via writing. So we wanted him to have very limited access to the outside world. We didn't want him to have a voice any longer. However, that could happen in a legal way. And that was what we said. The time just was a blur. But I will tell you, we had to turn off the TV and stop listening to a lot of radio because every time the TV was on and it was during a news or anybody announcing news, we saw the pictures of my dad, Reet, and Terry Lomano come up. That was so difficult to see. You're walking through the living room and boom, their pictures come up. I'm getting ready in the morning and their pictures come up on the TV. I had to put up a wall for that and try to not have emotion about it. But when you try to not have emotion about that, it limits your healing. You're not only getting it from the media, though. You're also having to go through depositions and things like that for the legal process too, right? So it's coming at you from so many different angles and you are not being given any room to even sit down and process what's happened. Right. It's happening all very fast and you don't feel like you have much control. In a matter of minutes, you get asked questions that you've never been asked before. And you're processing funeral services and you're processing what you think should happen to this person who murdered your family. And you're processing, how are we going to live another day? We went to a wedding in May and Lucas said to me, who's going to be my best man? We're processing all of these things. And my mom is now without the love of her life that she met when she was 16. It is overload. What was so difficult about the criminal battle is that the shooter was representing himself. People wanted to interview him, and that was very angering. It was very angering that anybody wanted to interview him. He got written up in the local newspaper, and people wanted his story. And that was what, as family members, we wanted stopped as quickly as possible. I wasn't really able to process it at the time. I did come face to face with him, and so did my husband, Lynn. So did my mom, and so did my brothers and my. 12, 13-year-old son, Lucas, we all wrote victim statements and we stood two feet from the man who murdered my dad and son. We told him how heinous he was. We told the audience and the courtroom about our family members and what was taken from us. It actually went fairly quickly. We had the victim statements and then he was sentenced. A jury found him guilty and then the jury sentenced him to the death penalty. He was put in prison. We had him moved away from us. Kansas didn't have a hate crime on the books. There was no hate crime statute. So it wasn't processed as a hate crime. So federally, when people talk about statistics for hate crimes or they have numbers of hate crimes that happened in 2014, the murders of these three people, which was a hate crime, are not considered legally a hate crime. That was very difficult to process later. He had been sentenced to death. Now he's on death row. I started writing my book with my publisher, Front Edge Publishing, when I was titling the memoir that I wrote, Healing a Shattered Soul. I wanted it to be healing. 
because my entire life is healing. I will always be healing. There is always going to be a hole in me. And sometimes it's harder to live with than other days. We decided in October of 2020 that my publishing date was going to be May 3rd. Well, in February, March, the shooter files an appeal. And so it's all over the news again. So all of it comes out again, and he's back in our lives. It's in the newspapers. I'm getting interview requests. The DA calls, and he says, this is normal. This can happen. People want to interview me. And one of the worst questions, oh, does this rip off the Band-Aid? Does this remind you of what happened? I can't even tell you when someone says, does this rip off the Band-Aid? Not one second of any day do I ever, ever, ever forget that my dad and son were murdered. This is all March and April. My book has already been written. I've got some in print and my publishing day is May 3rd. My mom calls me at about 11 p.m. on May 3rd. My day has been done. We had my book event. I'm relieved. I'm tired. She called me at 11 p.m. I answered the phone and she said, he died. That's all she had to say. I said, did someone kill him? And she said, no, they said natural causes. I said, you know my book published today. She goes, of course I know your book published today. There are a lot of reasons I am very grateful for today's sponsor, Magic Mind. First of all, I'm not sure about you, but the moment I wake up, I used to immediately begin chugging coffee. Some days I can get through three or four cups before I've even realized I've had enough caffeine to keep me up until three in the morning. And of course, for the rest of the day, I'm vacillating between amped up and absolutely exhausted, which affects my productivity deeply. So when I found Magic Mind, I was super excited to try this caffeine alternative without the roller coaster of energy. And guess what? I replaced nearly all of my caffeine intake with a shot of Magic Mind in the morning almost instantly. And within just three days, I felt more balanced and less jittery. That's because Magic Mind has matcha, which contains way less caffeine than coffee, but also has catechins, which slow down the body's digestion of caffeine, prolonging its effects. Matcha also has L-theanine, which is known to reduce stress. Magic Mind's other ingredients include lion's mane mushrooms, bacopa monieri, and rhodiola rosea, which are all nootropics that support focus and overall health. Not only does Magic Mind have all these impactful ingredients, but it also tastes delicious too. If you're looking for an alternative to coffee, I definitely recommend you try Magic Mind today by going to www.magicmind.com WCN and get up to 50% off your subscription if you order in the next 10 days with the code WCN. Or use the code anytime to receive 20% off a one-time purchase. Just don't forget to use the code WCN. He died the day my book was published. In prison, natural causes. He can't do an appeal again. He's not going to speak again. I need to say, I feel badly for his family. I never met his wife. I don't know if he was still married to her at the time. I never saw her or met her. I never met any children that he had. I did get a Facebook message from a daughter at some point 
apologizing and saying that their family was so horrified by the path that he had taken and what he had done. I appreciated that at the time. I'd love to talk about the different channels that I've found healing in. I think that can be very helpful to people. I heard from my dad, never be afraid to fail. And Amy, I do get afraid to fail. But then I hear my dad say, never be afraid to fail. For me, that means if I get fearful of failing, I just realize I need to surrender and let the process happen. That has truly helped me in my healing process. I love that. My mom had a very similar saying. She would say the only surefire way to fail is to give up. So really, there is no failure as long as you're trying. Yes. What I want to say is it's so important that we find our onward in a healthy way because there are unhealthy ways to grieve. Every griever will hear, everyone grieves differently. There are no rules. Just do your own thing. Well, yes, and to a point, there are negative ways to think that you're healing. And those negative ways are band-aiding the pain, basically numbing yourself to the pain. So the things that I talk about and that I feel like I have healed the best through are being okay and open to asking for help. I had to immediately start asking for help. I couldn't even feed myself. I couldn't put my pajamas on. I couldn't walk to the mailbox. I didn't know if I could drive a car. I forgot how to do math. I mean, my brain was all over the place. So I allowed myself to sit in the pain. I allowed myself to feel that pain. And it's a horrible pain. I don't want to feel it, but I know when it's creeping in, it's healthiest to allow it to come and sit in it. I would sit in the pain long enough to sob myself into a snotty mess and pick myself up off the floor and then say, okay, what's next? One great process that we went through in our counseling was eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It helped me detach my heart from my head when I tell the story about finding them in the parking lot. I have to reach down really deep and meditate to feel the feelings that I felt when I was in the parking lot. I can see it, I can feel it, but it's not the same depth at all that I felt for the first three years of living without them. And then the other channel that I took was really taking a look at my professional career and how difficult it was to go back to work. I was the breadwinner. Lynn was a great stay-at-home dad. I was the CEO and co-founder of a wealth management firm. As I went back to work, I found myself training everyone around me how to adapt to me, what to say, what not to say, when to say it. I had to let my coworkers know when we had team lunches that at some point in time, they could start talking about their children and their weekends and their baseball games and their scouting events and their parents. So I started with my business partner, Lisa Cooper, Workplace Healing. And Workplace Healing is meant to increase the empathy in workplaces so that leaders can be the umbilical cord to their employees and help bring them back into work, help bring them back into the fold. We don't have to know every single detail about what's going on in someone's life, but we need to acknowledge it and walk alongside someone and be there for someone, especially in a working environment, because we spend so much of our time at work. So Workplace Healing is a consultative firm and we have human interaction and we have a software platform It's a human recovery plan and it's an empathy implementation tool. And it's just a really great avenue for leaders and 
coworkers to build a human recovery plan for someone that has had a loss in their life. We have a presentation we call Leading Through Loss because we want to educate leaders on really how easy it is to help lead an employee through a loss they've experienced. We started a foundation. We renamed it Seven Days Make a Ripple Change the World. And our goal has been to train and help middle school and high school students understand the importance of kindness and help them be kindness influencers. We have a kindness youth leadership team. People can reach us at sevendays.org. It's S-E-V-E-N-D-A-Y-S dot org. I did a podcast and it's called Real Grief, Real Healing. I interviewed people who experienced a real significant life disruption. I interviewed my mom. I interviewed both of my brothers. I interviewed my son, Lucas. It was so special because that was the first time that Lucas really allowed me to talk to him about the murders. For years, he didn't want to talk about what had happened, and he's matured so significantly. We had to put a lot of effort into him and into our marriage to stay together, the three of us, and we have done so. He's just such a blessing. The podcast was able to bring about relationships with other people. My podcast interviewees were all associated with some type of tragedy or tragic incident or a loss. I'm not doing the podcast any longer, but my podcasts are all on my YouTube channel. So Mindy Corcoran, 48 podcasts. So I did podcasts for two years and I enjoyed it, but the energy it was taking from me needed to be redirected to workplace healing. We are coming up right now on 10 years. It's 2024. I remember a rabbi I had a meeting with about six weeks after their murders, and I couldn't get through any conversation without crying. I didn't wear makeup for four years because I never knew when I would cry. And I was crying in this rabbi's office. I'd never been in the temple before. And he said, I can't wait to see you in 10 years. I thought I might die that minute. The pain was that unbearable. And he said, you have some light, Mindy. You have a light that is shining through you and out of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll be in 10 years. He and I talked last week. I said, Rabbi Nimitov, it's been 10 years. I've managed to really glue my family back together. We have a foundation that has been grassroots and is still running. I said, somehow I made it. I made it to that 10-year mark. I just want to thank you for believing that I could. I didn't think I could survive another minute or another day. And yet here I am 10 years later. And I know it's because my dad and Reet shine through me. And I let them shine through me every single day. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Is there anywhere else you would want to direct people to find you online if they feel so inclined? Yeah, LinkedIn is awesome. Someone can find me on LinkedIn. I am on Facebook and I am on Instagram, but I'm much better at LinkedIn. So those are the channels I'm on. I love to present. I do love to speak. And probably like you, after a while, it takes it out of me. So then I give myself some respite. But I'm about to start speaking. This coming weekend, I'll be presenting in Tampa for a conference called Lean In Level Up. And then Seven Days is hosting our events in April. Thank you for everything that you do. I just really appreciate you. Well, thank you. In the bonds, sister. In the bonds. Hate crimes can be defined as crimes, typically involving violence, that are motivated by prejudice on the base of ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, or similar grounds.
According to the FBI website, the year that Dr. William Corcoran and Reet Underwood were both murdered, law enforcement agencies submitted incident reports involving 5,479 criminal incidents and 6,418 offenses that were all related to hate crimes. The numbers were down from 2013. However, according to USA Today, hate crimes skyrocketed in 2023. In-depth analysis of 25 major American cities found hate crimes increased an average of 17% from 2022. Although there are federal laws that punish hate crimes, each state has the ability to create hate crime statutes centered around discrimination because of race, national origin, religion, sexual orientation, gender, sex, gender identity, or disability. According to the Justice Department website, there are two states that still do not recognize hate crimes. Those states are South Carolina and Wyoming. It was not until the early 2020s that Kansas enacted hate crime laws, although a prior statute did allow the sentencing judge to incorporate a hate crime into sentencing. For a breakdown of state-by-state -state statutes, please visit the episode notes for a related link. Although racism and bigotry is pervasive and systemic, there are still methods of prevention. The first step to change is awareness, and that awareness can come via various methods. There are many community-based organizations that educate and amplify prevention methods and inclusivity. Other methods of prevention include increased police officer training, specific hate crime policing task forces, and prioritizing the criminalization of hate crimes. If you believe you have been a victim of a hate crime, first report the crime to your state or local police. Dial 911 or call your local police station. Police officers may reach out to you for more information as they investigate the crime. It is also suggested to quickly follow up this report by reporting the crime to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You can do so online at tips, that's T-I-P-S, dot F-B-I dot gov. You can also report by phone by calling the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-225-5324. This episode is in loving memory of Dr. William Corcoran, Reet Underwood, and Terry Lamano. May they rest in peace. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next... It was really surreal having to go into the courthouse knowing that he was in the same building. Keep in mind, from the time of his arrest to sentencing, it's been nearly two and a half years. It just brings up so much. Thank you again to today's sponsors, BetterHelp and Magic Mind. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.